This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. We have all seen the devastating attacks on Paris play out Friday afternoon. Obviously watching video here in the U.S., 129 people at latest count have lost their lives, with many more critically injured. But what can be and maybe must be done in the wakes of these attacks? Joining us to discuss this part of the story, Brendan O'Leary, professor of political science here at the University of Pennsylvania, and also Erwan Michel Kerjan, who is executive director of Wharton's Risk Management and Decision Processes Center. Gentlemen, as always, great to see you both. Thanks very much for coming in. Thank Good you. morning, Dan. Great to have you. Erwan, obviously, uh, this has hit you close to home. You have family members uh, in Paris. Uh, what are you hearing from them as, as just what the city is like now, what, 48 to 72 hours after these attacks? Well, um, well, thanks for having me on the show. Uh, I think t- t- two reactions. One is just to put things into perspective here. That's the uh, deadliest attack on French soil since the World War II. Um, just, just to put that into perspective. So we're not talking just about another attack. Uh, we had one, obviously, uh, earlier this year in Charlie Hebdo. This yep. one was extremely targeted to uh, that uh, that newspaper um, for different reasons, but that was very targeted. Uh, this one, obviously, uh, is a coordinated attack. Uh, and we're still struggling with understanding what really really happened, um, linked to ISIS, linked with Belgium and others. So uh, it took me like more, almost 24 hours to reach out to one of my family members living in Paris just because her, her cell phone was shut down, but you don't know whether her cell phone shut sure. down because she's in the hospital or whatever. So uh, I, very high level of stress, uh, of course, and obviously a lot of uh, compassion from around the world, which uh, we're all uh, very grateful for. Not, not only Charlie Hebdo's attack, but also we had the, the failed attack uh, just a couple of months ago on the train uh, where the uh, U.S. soldiers uh, kind of thwarted that attack. So it, it, that's three really significant events within the last year or so. And, and, uh, and many more that and, the French intelligence was able to stop before um exactly. before happened. So what is it specifically, why, why do you think that that Paris and, and France are really being targeted at this point? Because it would seem that they are one of the, the primary focuses right now. Well, let me start. I'm sure, Brandon, we'll, we'll, we'll add to that. I think, well, geographically speaking, you, you're closer to um, Syria and, and you mixed with uh, a massive immigration, as we've seen in, in previous sure. years. Uh, France is, is also pretty uh, loud in terms of expressing itself on the international scene, both militarily and diplomatically speaking, with some ideals. And obviously Paris, if you're looking for a symbol, uh, Paris is a great symbol in the same way that New York was a great symbol yeah. uh, on, on 9-11. So the symbolic, I think, is, uh, is, very, um, is very important. And, and last point is obviously you have uh, ongoing issues in, in France uh, with um, some of the products. France is, is the European country with the largest Muslim population. Uh, also, actually, the largest uh, Jewish population in Europe. Mm-hmm. So you have uh, you have interesting mixed uh, right right here, um, and with some control. But uh, if if the the number is right of six thousand uh, individuals on on French soil were sympathetic to ISIS, uh, it's very hard to track six thousand people. The next yeah. question becomes: What do you do as a, as the president and the prime minister? Brandon, I agree entirely with Erwin. Uh, France is chosen as a target largely because it's the major NATO ally of the United States engaged in both Iraq and in Syria, and uh, let it uh, not be forgotten, a major war in Mali 
as yeah. well. So France is vigorously placing itself at the spearhead of um, repressing ISIS and ISIS-related allies. Um, all of the factors that Erwin mentioned, large uh, Muslim population, large Jewish population, networks flowing into France as a result of the refugee crisis in Syria, plus long-established um, indigenous uh, Islamist groups. All of these factors um, are combining to produce this kind of event. As you were uh, talking to us before we went on the air, uh, you just actually were recently over uh, in uh, Kurdistan. And just tell us a little bit about what is going on there right now, because obviously there's a, there's a, a we're talking about an area of the world that it is really being focused on because of all uh, of what is going on right now. Uh, that's correct. I, I met with the Prime Minister of the Kurdistan region, Netrevan Barzani, and at that juncture, the Sinjar operation was underway. Yep. Sinjar, as people may recall, is the place where the Yazidis were um, conquered, um, occupied, and their women um, stolen for slavery. Mm -hmm. The Kurds have liberated Sinjar, and that's crucial. It's a first step. And what this has done is to cut a strategic uh, hole between IS's strength in Syria and their strength in Iraq. Um, if we look, if we think carefully about who who are our strategic allies against Islamic State in the area, the only fundamental, uh, reliable allies against Islamic State are the Kurds, particularly the Kurds of Iraq, but also the Kurds of Syria. Mm -hmm. So I, I would expect in the coming weeks for a strategic rethink to take place. The United States so far has only supplied the Kurds with the permission of the Baghdad government. It's essential for Kurdistan to be successful in repulsing ISIS and indeed going on uh, to take Mosul for the uh, Peshmerga forces to be properly and fully armed, as if they themselves were a sovereign state. Once this happened on Friday, uh, President Hollande of, of France was was very straightforward in terms of his response and obviously the bombing of, of various sites uh, inside of Syria. Any surprise that he was that direct? I mean, he, he is basically, no, I, he's called it a war right off the bat. Absolutely. If, if Islamic State says it's a state, if it says it's a caliphate, if it declares war on the rest of the world, it shouldn't be surprised if we respond in kind. Uh, the exact words that... Um, Francois Hollande used in the uh, translation that was that France would be merciless. Yep. I expect an increase of the kind of rhetoric that we heard during the repression of the Islamists in Algeria. There the language was the use of the term eradicator. Sure. Uh, people yeah. will want to eradicate ISIS. And this is not a strategically stupid thing. In, in order for um, ISIS to be comprehensively defeated, it must be defeated first and foremost in where it is territorially strong, where it can provide resources, uh, not simply communication resources, but military resources, uh, uh, taxes, stolen oil wealth, and so on, all of which help the various networks that they sponsor. So it's essential that IS be destroyed and political care be given to what it's replaced with. Sure. Any surprise on you about President Hollande, especially considering the fact that he was at Stade de France for the uh, French-Germany football match uh, and obviously was not that far away from, from two of the bombs going off. No, he, he was evacuated uh, very quickly as, as you know, any, any president around the world would. Uh, now, I think Brandon said, well, in terms of, of what had to be done, the other thing is um, to remind the, uh, the um, listeners is when you think about the uh, state-of-the-art intel services around the world are really the great, the great intel services. You get the Americans, you get obviously the French, the Israelis, yep. and the British. I mean, there are others, of course, but these four are, are really, really top-notch. So uh, for the president to be able to make such a statement so quickly means that they had the intelligence um, of where it was coming from. 
Uh, was that a surprise? You mentioned that earlier. No, it was not a surprise. Many attacks had been prevented. Uh, yep. Many of them were not publicly disclosed in the same way that uh, the British had prevented many attacks before the July 2005 yep. attack in, in London. So uh, you, you, you stop, you stop, you stop, and you stop, and you know that one day you won't be able to stop, which really tells you there's fundamentally something changing. Here. It, it is interesting, though, that in the wake of this, we've seen uh, various governments in, in Europe basically come out and say, yes, well, you know, in the last six, Britain, uh, uh, Prime Minister Cameron said, in the last six months, we've thwarted seven attacks. Uh, there was also brought out that apparently there were uh, several threats, maybe not a surprise, towards the Sochi uh, Olympic Games. And Russia has come out and said how they really worked in unison with a variety of countries to try and prevent those types of events. This is... Look, this is something that, unfortunately, we're going to be dealing with for quite some time. And there doesn't seem to be a way to be able to get ahead of the people that are committing these crimes. Well, let me just say one thing for the listeners. I mean, for some people in my... I mean, powers get closer to the U.S., of course, but if you go to the Middle East, many people think, well, it's the Middle East, it's far away, sure, it doesn't yeah. affect me every day. And, and for years, we've left ISIS grow to what ISIS is, has become. Uh, it's important for people to realize that ISIS has a financial power. You were referring to the, yep. uh, the, the uh, CIS all uh, a few minutes ago, much more financial power than Al-Qaeda ever, ever had. So everybody was watching, saying, well, the day ISIS want to move from where they are now to actually becoming a global terrorist organization, yeah. uh, they already have thousands of people prepositioned. And I think the prepositioning of these yeah. individuals is critical, uh, I would argue, including here in the U.S. And obviously the digital element that they have, you know, really in terms of recruitment, uh, being able to use the Internet as a weapon in a lot of cases uh, is a huge part to this as well. It is. It's uh, what distinguishes them from, from other groups, their success in having a, a communication strategy. But I would, I would argue that the current moment provides a wonderful opportunity for international and regional cooperation against mm -hmm. them to squeeze those who've been soft on IS. And those who've particularly been soft on IS are the Saudis, the Qataris and the Turks who in other respects are our allies. Yeah. We have to refocus on how we rebuild both Iraq and Syria without necessarily having any major Western uh, armed forces on the ground. Mm -hmm. Great thought has to be given to how you reconfigure these areas after IS is defeated. And that requires a prior strategic agreement among uh, the international partners. And it is at least a good sign for me that the current G20 is taken up precisely with the agenda of what we do now. Yeah, and as we were talking about before we went on, that's it's a little bit of an ir ironic twist here that you do have all of these leaders in one spot at one location. And obviously, the picture of President Obama and uh, Vladimir Putin has made the rounds uh, that, you know, whether or not anything happens from it, but seemingly at least they're talking about how they can work in unison to try and defeat ISIS if possible. Right. Uh, uh, currently, the U.S. is the ally of Russia in, in uh, Iraq, but it's adversary in Syria because uh, they have different views on the, the Assad regime. Yeah. I think the impact of what ISIS has done is going to um, let people make a decision that the removal of the Assad regime takes second place to the sure. defeat of ISIS. That doesn't mean that the Assad regime should be permanently enabled, 
But I think we need to see uh, strategic thought given to how Syria is reconfigured and how Iraq is reconfigured. And in both cases, the obvious way forward is to confederalize them, to have three distinct areas, Mm -hmm. um, uh, a Shiite area, a Kurdish area, and a Sunni area. Uh, You don't necessarily want an externally driven international partition of these entities, Mm -hmm. but allow them to reform around their existing constituencies. That can be done. Something like the 19th century conferences in which the great powers basically decide what's going to happen. Or if you like a more modern, recent analogy, what happened in the case of Bosnia-Herzegovina. The other, uh, obviously, piece of this that, that is kind of intertwining is the fact that we're also in the middle of the uh, the migrant run from that part of the world up to Europe right now, right. and the concerns, the security concerns of potentially some of those people that may have been involved in this being part of that migrant push up and may have had Syrian uh, identification being able to get up into that region. Uh, exactly, and indeed, one of the one of the immediate. Um, explanations of the mass rise in the number of migrants is not just episodes inside the Syrian civil war, but the decision by the Turkish government to allow it to be easy for the migrants to go into Europe. That means both the United States and Europe need to think very carefully about how they bargain with President Erdogan in Turkey. He's shown his ability to switch that tap on and off. And incidentally, I think one of the byproducts of what's just happened in Paris is that the Germans will probably reconsider their generous response to the migration crisis, uh, to the refugee crisis. So we'll see all sorts of um, consequences down the road from what what happened in in Paris on Friday. Certainly, Erwin, this is, as Brennan just alluded to, this is going to probably change a lot of things that are going on in Europe right now. Germany obviously being the focus with the the comments that uh, Angela Merkel has made. Yeah, no, uh, I would argue not only in, in Europe, but around, around the world, I think. Yeah. Um, I mean, the two questions obviously on the table now, and there are many questions, it's too early to, to know what, what happened in the next few days, and maybe you should come back a week from now. Sure. Uh, w- w- one is uh, when, if any time, when, when ISIS decide to scale up this type of attacks that they're using. I mean, right now, when you think about it, that was on the one hand very sophisticated in terms of coordination. Mm-hmm. But in terms of the weapons that were used, that was fairly um, fairly simple. I mean, yeah. r- raffle, I mean, not simple, but raffle. You're not talking about large-scale uh, attack in, in hundreds of thousands. Now, if ISIS start playing with more, uh, you know, dirty bombs and small nuclear devices and uh, move, out, whether in Europe or outside of, of Europe, uh, that will have massive impact not just on the uh, level of threat, but also on the, uh, on the business communities. And I'm thinking sure. about our yeah. listeners here. Uh, the uh, the current attack in Paris will not have a direct impact on, on the, the economy only after you start thinking and linking that to the migration or refugee uh, crisis that Europe is in, which is to me fairly uh, surprising that none of the European leaders actually saw that coming uh, because um, while well, several others have been have been. Uh, mentioning that for yeah. uh, for a year or two, saying, "Well, what's happening in Syria is not just a Syrian issue; it's going to spread around 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 the world very very quickly." And that's what we're um, we're seeing now. I was I was asked by the uh, British Review Nature to write an editorial right after the uh, Charlie Hebdo attack. Yeah, and I was making the point: it's not about Charlie Hebdo; it's about you know that that movement, uh, that ideology with uh, kids who are educated, non-educated, men yep. and women. So people think about these terrorists as a poor, uh, non-educated old male, when no. in reality it's a very diverse group of individuals. 
And, uh, you know, why not? I mean, what the irrationality, if you think you're going to go to paradise because you kill people and you're going to be a martyr and your entire family is going to be taken care of, sent to schools. Yep. And uh, if you're a man, you're going to have, um, you know, 21 virgin welcoming you in paradise. I mean, the old, yeah. you know, I mean. 64, I 64 believe. now. Well, now <laughs> it's even. Uh, and, and I think it's important for us to, to, to hear that view as well, because we're asking ourselves, how could they, you know, kill themselves. And, you know, we've seen that on 9-11. Yeah. But the rationale is very, very different. Their, their hope is to become more here. And that is obviously something that for, for all of us here in the United States, having even been through 9-11, it still is something very hard to kind of wrap your head around and, and truly understand why people choose to have such a, you know, a strong belief and strap bombs to their bodies and want to go blow up other people that have nothing to do with this in any way, shape, or form. Yes, it's a, um, an absurdity that our Western discourse has got into the notion that somehow this has nothing to do with religious commitments and religious beliefs. Yeah. Somehow this has nothing to do with Islam. Whereas, yeah. in fact, it is a, an obvious and recognizable species of Salafist Islam of the kind that has found it easy to flourish as a result of uh, Saudi Arabia sponsoring Wahhabist doctrine throughout a whole range of um, Sunni Islamic mosques throughout the world. So I'm not saying that the automatic consequences of the export of uh, Wahhabism is that everybody becomes a, a militant Salafist, sure, yeah. but enough of them do to create security problems for everybody else and problems of uh, religious coexistence. So we need to get tough on Salafist Islam. We need to get tough on the Saudi sponsorship uh, of um, th this bacillus, which has consequences for us all. And we think we need to think about how we decompose, degrade, and destroy the Islamic State. Because yeah. once you do that, you demoralize all those people who think that they're reenacting the re-beginnings of, of early Islam. But they, will it, be, they will be demoralized. We have to yeah. think about this as a, as a military campaign. They think that they're yeah. part of a successful uh, building of a new empire. That's why the, that morale has to be crushed through the decisive defeat of ISIS. And as we were talking about before, uh, the fact that this event happens on, on Friday, and now there are stories out there that there could potentially be something you know targeted for Washington, D.C. In, in the next couple of days as well. That goes right to the campaign uh, issue of it that, OK, we've we've done the first step. Now the next step is, you know, as part of an A, B, C and D type of type of philosophy. Right. Um, the, the tragic thing would be if everybody uh, preoccupied themselves with commentary for and against the Obama administration. Yeah. What's happened in Western policy is fairly clear. On the one hand, we uh, engaged in rather thoughtless, large scale intervention. And then we've decided that the best strategy is the converse of that. Yeah. Uh, no significant presence, uh, letting everything be done by local allies, not intervening. There is surely a sensible medium here that you can think carefully and strategically about what you want and have expressed goals. And those goals can include the reconfiguration of that space, Iraq and Syria, because you have to do something about the estrangement of Sunni Arabs from both regimes. Mm -hmm. They're an excluded majority inside Syria. They're a previously dominant and now excluded minority inside Iraq. They have to have a reasonable future. And uh, we have to make sure that there's a future for them, which is preferable to life under ISIS.
844-WHARTON is the number if you'd like to join in and uh, throw in a comment. 844-942-7866. We're talking with Brendan O'Leary, a professor of political science here at Penn. Erwan Michelle Krishan, who's executive director of Wharton's Risk Management and Decision Processes Center uh, as well. As somebody that obviously you grew up in France, and what would you like to see really be the steps taken going forward now to try and and tackle what is a massive problem and one that seemingly doesn't have any end right now? Well, let me, let me take other um, examples as parallel, less tragic, but um, sometimes you know as as more tragic. But the, uh, our, our team at Wharton has been spending the last 30 years studying these low probability high consequence events. I mean, that's what yeah. we do, uh, whether you're talking about um, pandemics, whether you're talking about terrorist attacks, um, natural catastrophes and the like. What, one thing we've learned the hard way, all of us, is that it typically takes a big event for reaction to happen. Yeah. And that just, you know, human behavior. I mean, that's true for all of us in our life. You know, we wait until next week and next month and next year, so we procrastinate. I think, as as uh, was mentioned before by Brendan, I think that's at least we owe that to the death I and mean, the people who died uh, in Paris, uh, and and more well because many of them were very very seriously injured. Yep. So they are in a, in, a, in in trauma center now. We we know that what that means potentially. Uh, no, I mean let's call it a war, but let's let's not pretend it's a war. Let's 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 reconsider where our, our lives are. Uh, who are the targets? Um, your point about making sure that ISIS is dismantled is critical because if they have the financial capability as they have now to train, to educate people, yeah. to send your kids to uh, to uh, to elementary school. I mean, for many people there, oh. ISIS is not the enemy. It's actually um, a good organization because an organization who has enough financial power to help you. Yeah. Uh, and that's why they self-proclaim themselves a state because they want to help people. So let's call it a war, but go beyond just Declaring war, putting the um, manpower, energy, international coordination, and military capability in, in ending it. it. It is interesting, though, that I guess one of the individuals that they're looking for right now that uh, is considered to be one of the masterminds on this, they, they wrote a little bit about him. He's somebody that was educated at a, at a very good school almost like a private school in Belgium. He has quite a background. He, you know, his family is well to do. And I guess he has seen. Uh, just his his people, just uh, as a group that has been afflicted upon for decades, and therein lies kind of the the mentality that uh, that you're really dealing with in this situation. Indeed, I you should not assume that the reason somebody is a jihadist is that they personally are economically marginalized, exploited, yeah. or deprived of opportunities. What you have to focus on is their convictions. Uh, their beliefs, uh, where do they get them from, and why perhaps those beliefs resonate. Uh, one can um, say that there are partial explanations for the success of jihadism to be found in Western policy, but I think it would be stupid and moronic on our part to spend our time engaged in uh, extensive self-criticism for our imperial past when the relevant yeah. factors here are actually the active success of ISIS and our a joint strategic need to make sure it is effectively destroyed. Uh, and we can deal with the estrangement of Islamic populations in Europe by the appropriate strategies, mm -hmm. fair employment, non-discrimination, yeah. in return for which they have to accept Western democratic pluralist standards, separation of religion from the state, 
uh, no demand for special uh, Muslim exceptions yeah. with respect to core values like female equality uh, and so on. Uh, we don't have to transform ourselves to appease uh, an unappeasable form of Islam. But at some point, if you do, uh, if you are able to defeat ISIS, then uh, then the focus not is only on continuing to manage that fight, but also the buildup or the reestablishment of a lot of things within Syria and and that, and that region of the world to make it a more you know, an easier world to live in instead of it being so radicalized. Right. Uh, and there are all sorts of competing prescriptions. Some people think it is uh, a mistake to try and reconfigure Iraq and Syria. Just leave them, sort them out. Containment, yeah. that policy option number one. Yeah. Second option, uh, go with the Sunnis. They're the largest community. Some people seriously advocate that. They still want to re-centralize Iraq and bring the Sunnis back to power. To my mind, this is a pointless and, and defeated strategy. The third strategy is to go with the local allies that matter, who are the Kurds, and to um, engage in international reorganization in favor of confederalizing both Syria and Iraq. And in the long run, that offers prospects for Sunni Arabs in both areas. They're, they're territorially contiguous. They can have good cross-border relationships in their neighborhood. There are obvious ways in which they have been excluded from power in both states. Mm -hmm. And we just have to make sure that the option that they don't go for is uh, living under ISIS. Gentlemen, it's been great seeing you again. Thank you very much for coming in. Glad your family is doing well. Thank you. Thank you, Erwan. Thank you, Dan. Great to have you, Brennan, as well. For more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.